Well, good morning, Bethel. Good to see everybody this morning. All right, so this morning's passage is Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. Uh, If you do not have a Bible with you, there's a Bible in the seat in front of you, and this passage will be found on page 983. And as always, our custom, if possible, please stand for the reading of God's Word. So we're going to be reading uh, Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Please be seated. Morning, Bethel. So today is December 30th, which, as you know, means we are situated in between Christmas and New Year's. So at Christmas, we celebrate Jesus' birth. We revel in the fact that the long-awaited Messiah came to save his people from their sins, and not just that, but also that he actually accomplished what he set out to do, and that he accomplished it through his perfect life, his death and resurrection, and that one day he's coming back again for his people. New Year's is obviously very different. At New Year's, not all of us, but some of us, we take time to reflect on the past year, make resolutions or goals for the year ahead, and resolve to live more Christ-like lives. So what do these two holidays, Christmas and New Year's, if anything, have to do with one another? Do they relate at all? Well, I think they do, or at least that they should, and here's how. What we celebrate at Christmas should serve as the foundation for how we go about planning and accomplishing our New Year's goals. To put it another way, the fact that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, including us, and finished what he set out to do on our behalf should be the solid rock that lies underneath our every resolution, our every goal, our every act of obedience. And that doesn't just go for Christmas and New Year's, but 
Every day, moment by moment, as we seek to follow the Lord and do what he commands, we always need to remember who Christ is and rest in what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do for us. We need to remember the gospel. Martin Luther, the famous German reformer, he put it like this. The law is divine and holy. Let the law have his glory, but yet no law, be it never so divine and holy, ought to teach me that I am justified and shall live through it. I grant it may teach me how I ought to love God and my neighbor, also to live in chastity, soberness, patience, etc., but it ought not to show me how I should be delivered from sin, the devil, death, and hell. Here I must take counsel of the gospel. I must hearken to the gospel, which teaches me not what I ought to do, for that is the proper office of the law, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me, to wit that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel wills me to receive this and to believe it. And this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it to others, and in typical Luther fashion, beat it into their heads continually. It's the first Bible thumper. Well, th that's precisely what the Apostle Paul is doing in his letter to the saints at Colossae. He's reminding them of Christ, of who he is and what he has done and what he will do for them. That's a message that they desperately needed to hear and keep believing. They had received and believed the gospel of Christ, but it didn't take long before false teachers came into their midst or rose possibly even from their midst. So the content of the teaching and its source aren't entirely clear, but judging from the whole of Paul's letter to, uh, letter to the Colossians, piecing it together, it seems likely that the false teaching advocated a type of legalism that was aimed at achieving greater spiritual fullness, or a type of legalism that was aimed at giving one true, real knowledge of God. So the false teacher's argument may have gone something like this. If you want fullness, if you want to truly know God, and if you want to be protected from evil powers, then you must follow and practice self-denial. They may have had fasting in view there. You must observe Jewish food regulations and religious holidays. And you must practice the worship of angels, which could either mean that you must worship or pray to angels, or that you must seek to worship God like the angels do. In other words, if you want to really, truly, fully know God, then you need Jesus plus additional help, plus additional acts of piety, plus additional work of God. That's really dangerous. In fact, to believe it is deadly. Do you see why? Well, for one, it sells Jesus short. It makes far too little of who Christ is and what he has accomplished. But also, if the saints at Colossae embrace that, it means that they're trusting in something false, something that has no power to help, deliver, or save them. That means they're turning away from the hope of the gospel, which says that sinners are acceptable to God, not because of what they do, but because of what Jesus has done for them. And so it's no surprise that Paul corrects this. 
And in Colossians 1, 15 to 23, our text for today, Paul begins to correct this by pointing the Colossians to Christ, by reminding them of the gospel and of their identity in Jesus, and by encouraging them to continue in the faith. Now, we may not live in first century Colossae, but we need to hear what Paul has to say here. It's so tempting for us to turn the page on Christmas and move into New Year's in our own strength with Jesus in the rearview mirror. If we're honest with ourselves, that's a battle that we face not just twice a year at Christmas and New Year's, but that's one that rages on in our hearts every single day. We are so prone to wonder. It is so easy for us, even as Christians, to forget the gospel, to forget Christ and what he has done for us, and to wake up and start living like it is our obedience that makes us right before God. That for God to accept us, we must follow this or that rule, check off this or that box, or accomplish this or that goal. It's not that our obedience doesn't matter, it does. We'll talk about that some today, but it's that our obedience needs to come from the right place. It needs to be founded on Christ and who we are in him. And so we need to get our eyes on Jesus. We need to see who he is and what he's done for us. And when that happens, we will view our resolutions, our goals, our acts of obedience in the right way, and we'll actually be empowered to pursue them in the Lord's strength. So that said, let's dive into the text. Colossians 1, 15 to 23. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 983. As we work through the passage, uh, we're going to focus on three points. Christ and creation, Christ and redemption, and Christ and you. So first, Christ and creation. This is Colossians 1, 15 to 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So those verses raise a number of questions, but the first one we should ask is, who was Paul talking about? Did you notice that he doesn't actually mention anyone by name there? Well, we need to go back to verses 13 and 14 to find the answer. There Paul says, He, the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's the Son, Jesus Christ, who is in view here, and Paul gives him, rightly so, the highest praise. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That doesn't mean that the Son is lesser than the Father. It means that the Son, Jesus Christ, perfectly shows us what God is like. John 1.18 puts it this way, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Jesus makes the invisible God known to man. As the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. But there's more. Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. What in the world does that mean? Does it mean that Jesus was a created being? That Jesus is not God? Some people in history have argued that. 
One of the most famous is a man named Arius who lived in the third and fourth centuries. He is famous for saying, there was a time when he, meaning Jesus, was not. In other words, Jesus at some point was created. Thankfully, his teaching, which is known as Arianism, was strongly condemned by the church in 325 of the Council of Nicaea. But people in our time, in our day and age, they argue this too. The prime example is probably the Jehovah's Witnesses. On their website, they say that he, Jesus, was God's first creation. Is that what Paul's saying? That Jesus was the first being ever made by God? No, absolutely not. When Paul says firstborn, he is meaning something more along the lines of what the psalmist means in Psalm 89, 27. Speaking of David, he says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. You see, at this time, the firstborn son in the family was the father's heir. So being the firstborn came with an inheritance. It came with certain rights and privileges. Psalm 89, 27 and Colossians 1, 15 both pick up on that, I think, and apply it to David and Jesus. David wasn't the first king in Israel's history. David wasn't even the firstborn son in his own family. But God made him the firstborn, meaning he is the highest of the kings of the earth. Likewise, Jesus is not literally God's firstborn son. He was not created. Jesus is God. Rather, Jesus is the firstborn of creation, meaning he is the heir of all things. He is supreme over. He is the ruler over all creation. And why is that true? Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is the firstborn of creation. He is the heir of all things. He is the ruler of all things. And why is that so? It's because he made it all. He wasn't created. He's the creator. He's the agent of creation. Through Jesus, God created every single thing in this universe. All things were created by him and through him, including the things you can see and including the things you can't. Whether it is spiritual or material, Jesus made it. And not only that, it all exists for him, for his glory and honor and praise. And not only that, but verse 17, Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. Were he to lift a finger, were he to have a single momentary lapse in power, the entire universe would unravel. Think about that for just a second. Think about it in relation to space. We live in the Milky Way galaxy. Did you know that just in our galaxy alone, there are around 100 billion stars? 100 billion stars in our galaxy alone. And there's certainly plenty of room for them here. If you were to move at the speed of light, the speed of light is 186,000 miles a second. If you were to move at that speed, it would take you 100,000 years to get across our galaxy. That means our galaxy is really big and it's full of a lot of stars. But 
get this, according to NASA, quote, scientists calculate that there are at least 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe, each one brimming with stars. There are more stars than grains of sand on all of Earth's beaches combined. One estimate even says that there are at least a billion trillion stars in our universe. Those numbers are so big, they are so staggering, that it's almost too difficult to even grasp the size that we're dealing with here. Not just our own galaxy, but our observable universe. And guess what Paul's saying? Jesus created all of that. It, he rules it all. It all exists for him, and he sustains it all. And that goes for the farthest star on the outskirts of the universe down to the tiniest atoms in each one of our bodies. As Abraham Kuyper said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That would have been really encouraging for the Colossians to hear. Remember that based on Paul's letter, it seems they were being told that in order to be protected from evil spiritual powers and in order to achieve or experience fullness, to really, truly, full, to really, truly, fully know God, to have their Christianity complete, they needed to pursue these additional acts of piety like self-denial, food laws, religious holidays, worshiping angels or worshiping God like angels. They needed these things added to their unity in Christ. And Paul's pushing back on that in the strongest of terms. There is no pious work the Colossians need to put on in order to truly know God. They know Jesus. They are united to Jesus, which means they know God. They know the one by whom, through whom, and for whom all things were created. They know the one who sustains the universe and who can protect and sustain them in their faith. And there's no spiritual power the Colossians need to fear or worship. Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities in verse 16 here likely refer to angels, possibly good ones and bad ones. If that's the case, what Paul's doing is reorienting the Colossians' worldview. They don't need to fear evil spiritual powers. Jesus didn't create them evil, but he did create them, and he does sustain them, and they do exist for his glory. And the Colossians don't need good angels to get closer to God. Jesus is supreme over them too. And he is all the Colossians need to enjoy and know and pursue God. To sum it up, a commentator named R.C. Lucas puts it like this. Whoever takes seriously the true Christ cannot doubt his adequacy to supply all his people's needs and bring them to their goal. How strange if he who is sufficient to sustain a universe should be insufficient in power for the little church at Colossae. We need to hear and believe that. To borrow the phrase, how strange if he who is sufficient to sustain a universe should be insufficient in power for Bethel Baptist Church in Wilmington, Delaware. Our Jesus is strong, Bethel. If you are trusting him for your salvation, he is all you need. 
There is nothing, there's no goal, no resolution, no act of piety that you need to add to faith in him to know God. If you are his, if you have turned from your sin and trusted Jesus to save you, then you know God. Then you have been declared not guilty, but righteous instead by the Father. If there is something that Satan would love for Christians to believe, it's that we stand guilty before God deserving wrath, that God is displeased with us and is ready to strike. But he's dead wrong. True, we once stood guilty before God. We once deserved wrath. But thankfully, Jesus took our place. And on the cross, he bore God's wrath for our sins and paid the penalty that we deserve to pay. That means that if we are trusting in Jesus for our salvation, there's no more wrath left. There is no more condemnation. There is nothing to fear. In Colossians 2, 13 to 15, Paul puts it like this. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and get this, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The rulers and authorities that we can be tempted to fear, the condemnation from Satan that can throw us in a spin cycle, Paul says that Jesus stripped the evil powers of their ability, of their right to accuse us before God. They have nothing to condemn us for. In Christ, we are not guilty, but righteous instead. Our sin has been dealt with, our debt has been paid, our guilt has been removed. And we have a Savior, a Redeemer, who is not only able to save us, but who is able to sustain us and keep us all the way to the end. Praise God for this good news. Jesus is Lord of creation, and he is able to help us get all the way home. He is all we need. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's, let's move on to the second point. Christ and redemption, verses 18 to 20. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So in verses 15 to 17, Paul emphasized that Jesus is Lord of creation. Now in verses 18 to 20, he narrows his focus or shifts it and puts the spotlight on Jesus' relationship to redemption and reconciliation. And he starts by saying that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. So just as Christ is supreme over creation, he is supreme over the church, over the new creation, over everyone who trusted and is trusting Christ for their salvation. Jesus calls the shots. Jesus sets the agenda. Jesus is king. Jesus is the lifeblood of the church. Further, he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus wasn't the first person to ever be raised from the dead, but he was the first person to be raised from the dead with a glorified body never to die again. And he is the first person to conquer sin and death, guaranteeing that all those who trust in him will be raised to life when he returns. And because that's true, Christ is preeminent 
preeminent. He gets first place. He is superior. Paul goes on in verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's a clear reference to Jesus' divinity. The ESV study Bible explains that well. It says, Jesus not only bears God's glory, but all that God is also dwells in him. He possesses the wisdom, power, spirit, and glory of God. To say that all this divine fullness dwells in Jesus is to say that he is fully God. Jesus is truly Emmanuel, God with us. C.S. Lewis, and I love this line, he got it right when he wrote in the last battle of the Chronicles of Narnia series, once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. But Christ didn't simply come to our world. He came to earth on a rescue mission to save his people from their sins, to redeem them from sin and death, to reconcile them to God. And so Paul continues in verse 20, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Through Jesus, through his death on the cross and resurrection, God will reconcile all all things to himself. Now that doesn't mean that everyone will eventually be saved and reconciled to God. Paul's not teaching universalism here. What it means is that ultimately, whether willingly or begrudgingly, everyone will recognize Jesus as king. Everyone will recognize him as the superior, preeminent Lord that he is. Paul says something similar to this in Philippians 2, 5 to 11. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One commentator, David Garland, has a helpful comment here to help us understand this. He says, the pacification of all things, human and non-human, does not mean that the enemies of God are won over in obedience to him. It is not a peace among equals, but one forcefully brought about by a triumphant victor. When Paul promises that every knee will bow at the name of Jesus and confess that he is Lord, he means that every being will finally acknowledge who is Lord of the universe. The unconditional surrender of the Axis troops in World War II brought about a, a cessation to the hostilities, but war crimes tribunals still awaited those who perpetrated evil. Again, this would have been instructive for the Colossians. For one, it puts any false teachers who have come in their midst in their rightful place. They have no authority over the church. Jesus does. They don't have the right to demand that other people follow them and their teaching. Jesus is the head of the church. It's in him that Christians are sustained and nourished. We need to hear that too. Bethel, Jesus is our head, not me, 
not Pastor Chris, not the elders, not all of us collectively, but Jesus and Jesus alone. He is Lord of this church. That means that everything we are and everything we do must be founded on him. It must all have him at the center. To quote our purpose statement, we exist to reflect God's infinite worth through Christ for the glory of his name and the good of all peoples. That's why we're here. Further, Paul's teaching would have addressed the fullness teaching going on in Colossae. Remember that the false teachers were likely telling the Colossians that in order to possess fullness, in order to truly know God, they not only needed Jesus, but they also needed to draw near to God through additional acts of piety, like self-denial, food regulations, religious holidays, worship of angels. Paul's turning that on its head in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That means that if the Colossians are united to Christ, they have everything they need to know and draw near to God. Nothing else is necessary to add to Jesus. He truly, really does bring sinners to God. I hope that that's comforting to you today. If you are united to Christ, then you know God. There is nothing else you need to do in order to know him, to be reconciled to him. No resolutions, no goals, no box checking. Christ is all you need, and in him, you have everything necessary to sustain and keep and nourish you in your faith. And one day when Christ returns to finally forever put things to rights, you are going to be raised from the dead just as he was and you will dwell with him for all eternity. That's our gospel hope, the hope of the gospel. So we need to keep looking to Jesus. We need to trust him. We need to delight in him, to praise him, to pursue him more and more, celebrating that he is our head, he is our peace, he is our reconciliation, he is the firstborn of creation, the firstborn of the dead. That brings us to our last point. Christ and you, verses 21 to 23. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. In verses 15 to 17, Paul explained that Jesus is Lord of creation. In verses 18 to 20, he narrowed his focus and emphasized that Jesus is Lord of redemption. He's the head of the church, the new creation. And now in verses 21 to 23, he's narrowing his focus even more to Christ and to the individual saints at Colossae. And as he does this, he addresses their past, their present, and their future in Christ. Their past was dark. They were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. They were not just separated from God, but they were opposed to God, doing evil deeds. They were rebels through and through. But thankfully, God stepped in. 
God intervened. Jesus took on flesh and he, fully God and fully man, died for their sins in order to reconcile them to God. Think about how awesome that is. They had sinned against God. They were the offenders. But God, not them, stepped in to save them. The offended party absorbed the punishment to save the offender. That is mercy and grace on full display. And because Jesus did that for them, their present position is now reconciled. That is who they are. Their identity is reconciled in Christ. They are at peace with God. And why did Jesus do that for them? In order to one day in the future present them, his bride, his church, holy, blameless, and above reproach before God if they continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that they heard. So if, that word there, what does Paul mean by that? If they continue in the faith. Is he saying that the Colossians are reconciled to God, but ultimately they can lose that status if they abandon the gospel? So is he saying that we can lose our salvation? No. His meaning is far different from that. If you have turned away from your sin and trusted Jesus to save you, you have been reconciled to God. Your position in Christ can never and will never change. By grace, through faith in Jesus, you have been justified in God's sight. You have entered the courtroom of the judge of all the earth and been declared not guilty, but righteous instead. That's justification. Not guilty, but righteous. And that occurred because Christ Jesus went in before you and took your guilty verdict on himself and paid your debt. So your slate is clean. Your sins are forgiven. You are righteous in Christ, permanently, forever reconciled to God. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But presently, you still struggle with sin, and so do I. We are at one and the same time both righteous and sinful. That doesn't mean our salvation can be lost. It can't. It means that while we are right with God through faith in Jesus, we haven't yet been made fully like Jesus. We're still being sanctified. We are still being made holy. And that's a work that will not be finished until Jesus returns and gives us perfect, glorified bodies and presents us to the Father holy, blameless, and above reproach. But that work, rest assured, it will be completed. That's why Paul says in Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, or at the day of Jesus Christ. So God will preserve you. Jesus will sustain you. The Holy Spirit will work in you and keep you faithful all the way to the end until you make it all the way home. If you are a Christian, that will happen guaranteed. In real time, though, in our day-to-day -day experience, do you see what that means? If God will ultimately 
make us like Christ, if we are going to persevere to the end, then that means that our obedience day to day matters. It means that we must stay faithful to Jesus, that we must continue trusting him and believing the gospel. Peter O'Brien puts it like this, if it is true that the saints will persevere to the end, then it is equally true that the saints must persevere to the end. Again, it, it's not that your perseverance saves you. You're made right with God by turning from your sin and trusting Jesus to save you. Jesus does that. You're saved by grace through faith in him, not by works. But if you have been reconciled to God, you will, by the power of the Holy Spirit working in you, continue in the faith and will one day, at Christ's return, be presented before God, holy, blameless, and above reproach. And so, if you depart from Christ, if you abandon the gospel, that doesn't mean you lost your salvation. It means you were never really reconciled to God in the first place. And so what does all of this mean for Paul's if statement in verse 23? What is it doing here? I think it's like a guardrail. It's a loving reminder for the saints at Colossae and us to keep our eyes on Jesus, to keep trusting him, to keep pursuing him, to maintain and believe the hope of the gospel. So for anyone here today who is not trusting Jesus to save them from their sins, please know that Jesus is ready and willing and able to save you today. All that he asks is that you come to him with nothing. Come to him, confess your sin and rebellion against him, confess your need of him and your inability to save yourself and trust him to save you. And Jesus will on the spot save you. You will be reconciled to God, declared not guilty but righteous instead. Your identity will change. You will move from rebel to reconciled. For those of us here who are confessing Christ, but who may be treating sin too flippantly, we need to hear this warning here, that you will be presented holy before God if you continue in the faith. So put away sin, put on right obedience to Christ and the power of the Spirit, and press on in faithfulness. For those of us here who are trusting Jesus, but who may be fearful, who may be afraid that we won't make it, who may be afraid or tempted to believe that God doesn't love me or that we need to do something in order to remain in God's good graces. We need to take comfort in the fact that Jesus has reconciled us to God and that he can and that he will sustain us to the end. It's funny, I actually had two John Newton quotes here that I wanted to mention that are two of my favorites, but I heard Josh this morning, give me a third. So if you missed that, um, I'm gonna read Josh's again and these two. So bear with me, a, a few good quotes here then. He says, I am not what I ought to be. Ah, oh, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil, and I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, shoot, soon, shall I put off mortality, and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet, though I am not what I ought to be, 
nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be. I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. And I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what I am. In Christ, our identity has changed. We aren't yet who we will be, but we're not who we were. We're not rebels. We're not at war with God anymore. Jesus has brought us to a place of peace with God. He has reconciled us to him, and that changes everything it should about how we live our day-to-day lives. At New Year's, when we go making our resolutions and goals, we shouldn't do so in order to try to earn some kind of additional check marks from God. We are righteous in Christ. It changes everything about how we live. Another quote from John Newton, he says, Fear not, only believe, wait, and pray. Expect not all at once. A Christian is not of hasty growth like a mushroom, but rather like the oak, the progress of which is hardly perceptible, but which in time becomes a great deep-rooted tree. So if you are fearful, if you are fearful that maybe you wouldn't put it this way, maybe you wouldn't say it this way out loud, but if you're fearful that Jesus isn't enough or that you, you, you need these additional um, boxes to check, these additional acts of piety to to, to really make God happy with you. We need to hear those words from John Newton and more importantly, the words from Colossians 1. Jesus is all we need and he has reconciled us to God and we need to fear not. Only wait and pray and continue day by day, moment by moment, pursuing the Lord, not in order to try to earn reconciliation, but because we already have it. And then again, the the quote that Josh mentioned. John Newton again. Are you not amazed sometimes that you should have so much as a hope that poor and needy as you are, the Lord thinks of you? But let not all of you feel discouraged. For if our physician is almighty, our disease cannot be desperate. And if he casts none out that come to him, why should you fear? Our sins are many, but his mercies are more. Our sins are great, but his righteousness is greater. We are weak, but he is power. Most of our complaints are owing to unbelief and the remainder of a legal spirit. And these evils are not removed in a day. Wait on the Lord, and he will enable you to see more and more of the power and grace of our high priest. The more you know him, the better you will trust him. The more you trust him, the better you will love him. The more you love him, the better you will serve him. Man, that is good. So earlier I said, it is no surprise that Paul corrects the false teaching in Colossae. What may be surprising is how he does it. Some people actually think that Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20, is an early hymn that Paul incorporated into his letter. Now, I don't think that's necessarily the case, but that said, what Paul writes here, it certainly has a poetic, a song-like quality to it. He is erupting in praise of Christ. He is reminding the Colossians who they are dealing with, who their Savior and Creator is. Now, I don't want to make too much of this, but I do think there's something here that's instructive for us. Martin Luther once said, the devil, the originator of sorrowful anxieties and restless trouble, 
flees before the sound of music almost as much as before the word of God. Music is a gift and grace of God, not an invention of men. Thus it drives out the devil and makes people cheerful. Then one forgets all wrath, impurity, and other devices. I think he's onto something there. Yes, let's fight unbelief and sin and the devil first and foremost through God's word. So in 2019, commit to those fighter verses if you don't already have a plan. Let's do those together. Store God's word up in our heart that we might not sin against him, that we might know him more, love him more, obey him more fully. But let's also follow Paul's example here and praise our God and strike at falsehood through music. As we move into the new year, let's not forget what we just celebrated at Christmas, that Jesus Christ, in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, came and dwelt among us. He lived a perfect life on our behalf, paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, rose from the dead, and is coming back again. He is the Lord of creation. He is the Lord of redemption. He is victor. He has reconciled us to God, and one day he will present us holy, blameless, and above reproach before God. So let's keep our eyes on him as we aim to follow God more closely in this new year. Let's not shift from the hope of the gospel that we have heard and believed, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Let's cling to Jesus the good news of his gospel, seek to follow him in obedience and tell others about him. And right now, let's close in song. So we're going to close with On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. Before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we love you. We are so grateful for you. Jesus, we praise and honor and worship you this morning. Lord, I pray that you would please keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Help us to behold our God, our creator, our sustainer, our redeemer, our reconciler. Help us not to shift from the hope of the gospel, but to glory in it, to celebrate it, to every day recognize and believe and cling to who we are in Jesus, that we are reconciled to God and him. Lord, so please continue changing us, continue making us more like Jesus. It's in his name I pray, amen.